had a Chris McLeish, here we are, episode number 26. This episode marks six months. <gasps> That's crazy, because it feels like November so, has just happened. Yes, it, it does. <laughs> uh, but that we are now at the, the sixth month mark for podcasting. That's mad. Very exciting. That's half a year, just in case you didn't know. <gasps> That's so true. Why aren't we making a bigger deal out of this? Oh, it's, life's too short. <laughs> <laughs> I mean, um, fair. Fair, who yeah. has the energy nowadays to do that? Absolutely not me. <laughs> not today, anyway. So how have you been? Oh, not too bad. It's, uh, yeah, I've had quite an exciting day today. It is Thea's birthday today. Happy birthday. Woo, woo, woo. I uh, know she, she wouldn't listen to this, but... I was going to say, she's not a fan. Hey. <laughs> she turns two today <laughs> and I did have a video call with her earlier and she showed me some of the nice things that she got that is very exciting yeah. Aww. and how about yourself how's things been things have been good um, I have been back at all my running, I've been doing my running again and I ran 25k last week fantastic thank you very much I did 5k every single morning Monday to Friday and I'm going to try and do that again this week um but I am buzzed and this is the most pathetic thing to be buzzed about right but on Sunday this coming Sunday I am going to Edinburgh and I swear to god I think it's the most exciting thing that's happened to me in about <laughs> a year <laughs> I mean you're not wrong I'm so excited to not what, be looking at Glasgow <laughs> what takes you to Edinburgh Nothing, just uh, me and my friend. We have hardly seen each other in a year. We're like, let's go, let's go on a wee Fly adventure. A that sounds fun. Exactly. Visit all go the locations. The exactly. Well, that's the thing. I was like, by the way, you're going to have to come to like a ton of graveyards so I can get pictures for the podcast Instagram. Absolutely <laughs> so love that. She knows, so she knows what she's letting herself in for because I was like, I can't not go and not go to Greyfriars Cartyard. Come on now. Come on. Well, yes. Has she been before? She has been before. And the last time we were there, we did stumble upon Greyfriars accidentally. So I just need to retain where it is or try and remember how hard. to get to it. It's not hard. I always forget that... Well, yeah, I was going to say, I always forget that people... I'm actually from the East, so that it makes yeah. sense to me. Edinburgh <laughs> is somewhere I'm very familiar with. When I did when I did Pyromania a couple of years ago, there was one of the people in my um, company who whenever mm -hmm. we were going somewhere would whap out the maps. And I was like, we've been here for four weeks. Why do you still whap out the maps? I, maps, I've lived here most of my life. I know exactly yeah. where we are and where we're going. <laughs> Follow me. Yeah, and but every time pull out the maps and be like, we're going this way. And I'd be like, no, no, we're not. We're going this way. It's quicker. <laughs> she never I learned. Will say, I will say one thing, though, is that when I did come through to see Pyromania, I got lost something awful looking for your venue because it was a part of the city I'd never been in in my life. It's very nice. The kind of university... It is very nice. University yeah. bit. McEwen Hall, which was where... That was the big round building that my venue was mm -hmm. round the back of. It is where I sat a chemistry exam when I was studying at Edinburgh University. I love... See, I love that. A full circle moment for yeah. you right yeah. there. That's, that is what we love. And another full circle moment... You're, you have tamed, I've retained a lot of that medical knowledge because I don't know if we said this, but 
I mean, the fact that you accurately diagnosed Joseph Merrick's condition before I yeah. even mentioned it. Yeah, so... Come on now. Um, <laughs> off, off the air, I off the said air. to Hannah... No, on the air, I said to Hannah, do you think maybe he had some kind of problem with his nerves or his nervous mm-hmm. system because the condition only attacked one side of his body? And then going off... Go, then we found that, um, yes, indeed, he had... Uh, Tumors, not they were kind yeah. of benign tumors on the nervous system. Yeah. Ta-da! It was crazy. Look at that. Hen- which is why your nickname shall henceforth be Doc. Yeah, Doc. Although he's always one of the most boring <laughs> of the of Snow White's pals. That's a bit rude. He was one of the few that had sense. True. Dopey was always my favorite because I went as Dopey for Halloween a couple of times when I was a kid. That is so cute. Yeah. Oh my god. We've got a picture of Mary as a clown and me as Dopey. Oh. <laughs> and there was a couple of times where Mary was a witch and I was her cat. That's cute. I saw a black cat this morning on my run, which was very exciting. Oh, good luck. Good because luck. I'm I'm what yeah, I'm one of the people that take that as as like a sign of good luck. Because I know a lot of people associate it with bad luck because of witches and stuff, but actually I see it I take it as a good luck thing. I think it's bad luck for people who are nasty to witches. <laughs> but exactly, we are exactly. friends with witches. Exactly. So um, that was nice. It was sitting in a wee loaf on Aww. the grass as I ran past and I fully spoke to the cat and the cat was just looking at me like, what is wrong with you? <laughs> I do that. I, I just the other day had to explain to my neighbour. I did say to her when I bumped into her, I was like, if ever you hear me talking to myself, it's because my cats like to go in the hallway when I open the door. So sometimes I have to chase them and then yes. I'll just be standing in the hallway talking to myself for a while. And uh, so now my neighbour knows that I'm not completely off the rails. I am. <laughs> I mean, I am, but I'm not, not in the sense that I talk to myself in the hallway. Exactly. Yeah, That's we've reserved not reached for that within stage closed yet. Doors. Yes, not, yes, yes, yes. Like, we're, we're a good like, length away from that sort mm-hmm. of stage of, of, um, of going slightly crazy yeah. after this after this year it's just it's just the cats it's the cats trying to escape which is always good fun the concerning thing would be that if ever she hears the cats respond yeah exactly that's a complete or if you start responding as the cat a little bit norman bates styley yes that is the next psycho film (laughs) yeah (laughs) Uh, the next adaptation is actually just someone who really enjoys cats yeah so just pretends to be the cats talking back although wouldn't back kill the cat them. and ret- and keep their bodies would be very <gasps> speaking of bodies <laughs> i watched a documentary last night called secrets of the sakara tomb that doesn't sound right to me but it was a secrets of and then a word that was s-a-q-q and then there was a couple of other letters it was a very good egyptian excavation documentary and they found this is a spoiler so skip ahead 10 seconds if you don't want to know they found the (laughs) first example of a mummified lion cub wow because they were like this cat's too big to be a domestic one and uh, there was a little you could peek in and they could see that the fur was kind of yellow and they were able to later confirm that it was a lion cub I don't know if I'm more fascinated with the fact that it was a lion cub or the fact it still has fur. But then if you think <laughs> mummies quite often have hair. Exactly, which is so weird. 
But yes, very good documentary. And they were excavating one particular tomb and they found a lot they found lots of really juicy bits. Really good. Oh, that's so cool. That sounds really good actually. Yeah. yeah highly recommend. I do love a good excavation documentary. I know that you're not a big fan of the of the bodies and things being on display, but I think this is the first time I've watched one of these documentaries where I did feel a little bit funny about disturbing the resting place. I just I find it a bit weird. Yeah. I, I don't want to like I don't want to like knock the archaeology industry because it is an amazing uh, an amazing thing and they do like brilliant jobs like finding stuff. I just find it strange like in the in the example of Kelvin Grove like we spoke about on Jen's episode. Um so if you go to Kelvin Grove Art Gallery and Museum in Glasgow they do have a section that is ancient Egypt and they have some, um, I think some jewellery and some like pots and pottery, I think. It's been a while since I was there. Um, but they also do have a sarcophagus and a mummy on display. Mm-hmm. Um, and the way they've kind of, the, the last time I was there, it was almost like, it was like in three layers. So you had like the bottom of the sarcophagus, the mummy, and then the lid. And I'm just like... You wouldn't put a modern person yeah. on on display. So why is it all right for us to look at this person? Yeah. I just I just uh I, I just find it a bit I just find it a bit odd, um the Yeah, I can understand the, that. Yeah. I mean yeah. I mean, I, I might be alone in that. And I, some people find it really, really fascinating. And that's absolutely fair enough. But, I mean, I mean saving Kelvin Grove, uh, I think Kelvin Grove is a fantastic place. It's an amazing, amazing, everyone should go. It's free. It's free people. Go, do it, have a look. Um, but even, like, all the taxidermy and stuff. Oh, taxidermy is really always like. me the <laughs> I really don't like it either, um, and it, yeah, it just it doesn't sit. I just I, yeah, I just don't like it. I don't yeah, like. Well, I can understand I, that. I just don't like it. <laughs> I can't yeah. think of anything else to say. It just makes me uncomfortable going in and looking at like a little mum, a little taxidermied baby monkey. I was like, I don't want to see that. Sorry. Yeah. I'd rather yeah. look at a pretty painting. Taxidermy's always given me the willies, but for some reason I have always had this fascination with um, ancient bodies. I don't know why. I've all, I look, I read into articles about discoveries of bodies found in the mountains, bodies found mm-hmm. uh, buried within ice, all that kind of stuff. I find mm-hmm. it so fascinating and how well preserved they can be. And I think that's Absolutely. where my fascination lies. Yeah. And especially in like the sort of the case of the ancient of, of the ancient Egyptians, mm-hmm. like the fact that those mummies have retained skin and hair, and you can visibly see in some of them that it is still a person. Yeah, and that was that length of time ago, and they are still. You can still tell. Yeah, it was once once a human. You have to wonder what. What they were, what they were using, but then I suppose leather couches. True. <laughs> leather couches are essentially the mummified corpses of cows. That I don't, yeah. I'm not a fan personally. But um, 
Uh, yeah, it's kind of similar. I suppose skin is much more durable than we give it credit for. Ah, uh, there's a quote. <laughs> <laughs> um, it's why Ed Gein was so successful in his creation of furniture. He was a bad human. He was an incredibly bad man. Um, he was a bad person. <laughs> let's not give him the airtime. Um, <laughs> one thing we do need to mention is that we have done a collaboration with a true crime blog called True Crime Diva. Uh, we wrote up a list of 10 of our favourite stories that we've covered so far on A Wee Bit Gothic. And uh, Deb from True, uh, true Crime Diva has popped it up on her blog and it's great. It's great. We were having a read of it last night and there's pictures and everything. Yeah. Uh, she's done a wonderful job of uh, taking the stuff that we had said to her and then expanding yeah. on it, adding pictures and stuff. And it's great. So pop over to True Crime Diva and have a little read of um, what 10 of our favourite stories are. Please do. Um, obviously, big thank you to Deb. And if you are a new listener, hello to you. Um, but if you're also looking just for our own personal highlights of the past six months, mm-hmm. since we're going to date it now, um, if you head on over to True Crime Diva and have a read of our uh, collab article, um, it'll give you a good starting point yeah. if you're looking for some some stories. Yeah, and I know that down the line, Deb, I was also going to start doing a strange story blog. So she's going to kind of branch off from True Crime and start doing just stories that are strange. So keep your eye out for that as well, because that is the kind of thing that is well up our street. Exactly. We do enjoy a strange story on this podcast. <laughs> it was tickling my knee. <laughs> <laughs> Sydney, what are you doing? Anywho, enough of that cat nonsense. Well, speaking of cats, yes. shall we turn to the hat? Let's do it. The cat in the hat. The cat in the hat. Okay. This one might require thought. Oh, no. (laughs) Are you you ready? Yeah. Your top three horror movie scenes. Oh, horror movie scenes. Yes. I challenge thee. Uh, I see your challenge and I accept. I have two have come to mind. Fantastic starting so, point is better than zero. Two thirds of the way. Oh, yeah. I have it. I have my three. Go for it. Okay. So these are all, these are the first three that instinctively came to mind. There are okay. plenty of incredible scenes out there that I could mention, but these are the first three that come to mind. So, first of all, is a scene from The Others. Mm, and this is a scene a that I always found very effective. Uh, Nikki Kidman can hear piano coming through her house. And she thinks, that's a bit strange. No one plays piano. And so she then goes to investigate with her shotgun. And it's at the point where, no spoilers in terms of plot, because Uh this is an excellent film that everybody should watch. Yeah. She goes in, nobody's there, piano lids up. She puts it down, locks it, leaves the room. Piano starts playing again. Bam bam. She goes in, the piano lids back up. She's terrified. She thinks, what an absolute time. Then she starts to leave the room, probably to escape the horror. And uh, she thinks, well, maybe it's my imagination. Maybe the door's squeaking. And it's the bit where she mm-hmm. is testing the door to see if it squeaks. And she mm-hmm. pushes the door 
And then it goes and smacks her in the face and knocks her to the floor. And she goes, Mrs. Mills! And uh, Mrs. Mills comes down the stairs with a big platen. And um, it's, that is one of my favorite scenes because as a child, because yes, I watched that as a child, I, it was one that always got me. And I used to anticipate yeah. that scene so much when I watched that film because it is so good. I love it. Yeah. Coincidentally, that's one of the few horror films I did also see as a child. I think it was just, I was, when it came out, I was still like, we were, we were still young things when that film came out. Yeah, I have a feeling, I want to say it was 2004. It was, yeah, it was definitely like mid-2000s, I think. So, so yeah. I would be, I would be 13, so I'm not a child child. I would it's be 12 young, for most of that year. Um, so yeah, I was still pretty young. I mean, I saw Sweeney Todd in the cinema when I was 15, but don't tell the police. Um... <laughs> Okay, um, so this might be not controversial, right? But just this film often gets gets categorised as um, a horror, but also as a thriller, which people do tend to think of as two separate things. I think they quite often, they coincide a lot in my mind. They coincide. Um, but one of mine has got to be the scene in The Silence of the Lambs when Jodie Foster first meets Mr. Anthony Hopkins down in the basement because I was obsessed with that film which makes me sound like a weird person but <laughs> when I was like a teenager because it was like one of the first like big horror films that like I saw when I was a teenager and just it's just such a well-made film and also the book is great highly recommend Thomas Harris's novels not Hannibal though it goes a bit weird at the end okay, okay. I think <laughs> the I film that. is better <laughs> um but yeah and the director Jonathan Demme sadly no longer with us um talked about how they specifically designed that set to look like the dungeon of a castle Oh, that's cool. Yeah, so if you, it's all like dark red bricks and like iron bars on the cells and it's really dark and dingy and he was like, we wanted it to kind of reflect like she was this this young girl going down into the bowels of the castle to like interview the monster. And then there's this brilliant tracking shot of like from Jodie Foster's point of view going across all the cells and the other people in the cells are like, crazy basically yeah. they're like so not on this planet and you think oh my god you've heard because up until this point you've just heard about Hannibal Lecter you don't know like what you're coming into contact with so you expect this madman and then the camera turns the corner and there's Anthony Hopkins just standing exuding charisma saying nothing in his cell and all he says is good morning and it's the most terrifying yeah. thing <laughs> so ever. effective so effective because you're expecting to see this madman but when it's actually this very suave educated gentleman that is a complete monster yeah talking to you it is just oh it's so effective every single time and he never fails to give me the heebie-jeebies all throughout that scene there lies a theme in thinking of again Jekyll and Hyde suave gentlemen you don't expect them to be the ones that are horrendous criminals Absolutely. Uh, even Sweeney Absolutely. Todd kind of respectable yeah. barber well mm-hmm. sh- shamed 
and then returned mm-hmm. and seemingly friendly barber uh, <laughs> he's got That's many layers he has a lot of layers going on he is the lasagna of the villain scene oh he is a lasagna oh, That's I a very good description onions are more conventional comparison but lasagna's great. Lasagna feels more on brand for Sweeney. <laughs> yeah, you're right. It's one of the places Anthony visited was at, was Italy. He was. I have seen the and seen the wonders of the lasagna in Venice, Italy. Well, that that's kind of that's how it goes. Um, <laughs> that was the cut verse. <laughs> that was the cut verse. Yeah, there wasn't enough time. Um, yeah, so there there is a bit of a theme in our interest in in the composed charismatic character being secretly dark it's very it's far more interesting than someone who just appears to be kind of exactly because it's that whole you don't know you don't know what they're thinking on the inside Mm -hmm. because you know they're crazy you know that they're a bad person but you can't you can't get past that exterior but you want to know two really geeky facts about the silence of the lambs when do i not want to know a geeky fact about a film so Fact number one for you. Um, every single character except Jodie Foster delivers their lines directly into the camera. Oh. Because Jonathan Demme wanted the film to be told from Clarice Starling's point of view. So everybody except her, when it's like a because shot the in their face. camera kind of represents her. Absolutely. So everything is delivered directly to the camera. And your nice. second geeky fact is that Anthony Hopkins does not blink. Anytime he is on screen. That's dedication. That is dedication. Although I do remember seeing a interview or something somewhere that he very quickly regretted that acting choice because he had to keep it up. <laughs> yeah. That'd be tricky <laughs> if he has any lengthy fair. monologues. Which is fair. But um but yeah, that's one of mine. So okay. your your second this is in no particular order, by yeah, the way. Yeah, no particular order. Just... There's probably others that the... I prefer more. It's just that these are the three that instantly came to mind. Inst- yeah, absolutely. The next one comes from The Conjuring, which is one of the two good modern horror film universes. I would say The Conjuring absolutely. and the Insidious universes are both pretty solid. Yeah. Um yeah. and this is a scene where one of the gals is in her room and she's getting scared. So, I know what you're going to say and I'm stressed out already. <laughs> and so the sister comes in to help and they could hear a banging. Oh no, she can hear the banging and it's her sister banging yeah. her head on the wardrobe. Then she takes her sister back to bed and the camera just pans to above the wardrobe and the witchy yeah. character is on top of the wardrobe and jumps down. And I think it is so well timed and the, the tension that is built of the sister going into the room to find her sister banging her head and all that. It's all so well done that when the witch appears, it's actually genuinely very frightening. And it's that I really enjoy. Definitely. And I think also the good thing about like the Conjuring films is that like, it's a proper old fashioned made horror film that doesn't just rely on jump scares. It's all in the atmosphere and it's Mm -hmm. all in like the dialogue and the, just the general, suspense that's created throughout it i think that's why it's they're like leagues ahead in terms of like your modern because usually now your modern horror film is now either jump scares or like gore there's kind exactly. of no there's no in between there's no yeah but then also when you've got actors like vida farmiga and patrick wilson at the helm oh, you're in so good hands good. you're in excellent hands because they're, so good. they're both incredible actors i was talking to matt recently about how a lot of films 
focus so much on appealing to a teen audience that they throw mm-hmm. in teen romance that doesn't need to be there. A lot yeah. of te- a lot of horror films these days, the goal of getting out of the horror is so that you can be with someone that you can that you fancy, yeah. and that yeah. is not interesting to me. Do not care. This is totally fair. I do not want a film that's about that. I don't want the film to be about the struggles of love when you're in the middle of a zombie apocalypse. Couldn't care less. (laughs) Give me a solid story that isn't about teen romance and then you're on to a winner. And that's one of the things that both Conjuring and Insidious have going for them. Is there a horror film that may appeal to teen audiences, but it's not about teens because that ruins a horror film for me. have hit the nail on the head that is the issue with the horror movie industry right now it is all about teenagers and quite frankly nobody gives a toss nobody cares sorry (laughs) sorry because usually by the end you're like can the murderer please just get them please because they're really annoying yeah stereotypical (laughs) teens yeah each one represents a different stereotype every time not interesting at all unless you're doing like a parody of like your classic 80s slashers like Nightmare on Elm Street or Friday the 13th or Halloween I don't know that's 70s but there was lots of Halloween films um, unless you're doing like that uh, we really don't care just give us we really don't care sorry yeah anyway, <laughs> anyway. Uh, so one of my next ones again I class it as a horror film a lot of people don't um, is the hip to be square murder scene from American Psycho. Okay. Yeah. Have you seen American Psycho? I have seen American Psycho. You have? Amazing. Yeah. So, um, it's this... American Psycho is a crazy film. Yeah. And it's part, like, horror and part kind of, like, black comedy, but, like super dark comedy (laughs) it's like it's really and there's this whole scene where patrick bateman puts on like a designer raincoat and comes out and puts on his cd player and he puts on a track by an 80s band i think they're 80s called huey lewis in the news for their most commonly known song is the power of love from back to future for anybody that doesn't know who they are but they had this song called Hip To Be Square. And Patrick Bateman does this whole monologue um, about how he thinks Hugh Lewis and the News are going to be the next big thing and they're going to be great. And um, this whole thing, and he's saying this to a co-worker who has, has been taking drugs. And then the scene ends with him decapitating said co-worker with an axe. Yeah. So, and I just... I just, I just think American Psycho is one of a, is like the best, one of the best mm-hmm. films ever made. I have got the book, but I, part of me doesn't really want to read it mm-hmm. purely because I know for a fact that, I mean, the reason it was so like controversial when it first came out was because of its depiction and description of like violence yeah. and... Um, assault and quite frankly I don't really want to read that no no <laughs> I'll be honest yeah um, that's not it's not really my not really my thing um, but I can understand why people absolutely love the book because it is like a total like ripping apart of the 80s yuppie culture Patrick Bateman's just like a clone mm-hmm. he's just he's just another 
young, upwardly mobile man living in New York City, making lots of money, wearing lots of designer clothes. Um, there's a whole scene when they where they talk about their business cards. Yeah. <laughs> the coolest business card. And it's so... It's just so intelligent yeah. and it's just so well made. And yeah, and that whole scene, you just wouldn't know that that's where it's going if you've never seen the film. <laughs> Have you seen Anthony from Queer Eye did a spoof? No. It's very good. I can't remember what the point in it was, but I fancy Anthony quite a lot. So I didn't really care. I was just watching it for, <laughs> for that. Um, that's fair. But it's kind of the routine of putting on a face mask all that kind mm-hmm. of stuff working out in the morning it was kind of a spoofing that scene from the film that's so funny i love that so much that's Highly so recommend. good i'll definitely need to look that up you should because that I mean, anthony <laughs> always a win always a win oh, yeah. and yours number three my number three is from the other of the good moderns insidious the fact that these two came to mind is probably because they are the two more recent good horror films that i've seen yeah um, insidious which probably really is about 10 years old now but i remember it i don't know how old it is actually who knows who cares to be honest um but it's another it's excellent point. example again patrick wilson and rose byrne he's just a winner just a winner <laughs> uh, rose byrne and and him both excellent but the scene that comes to mind is a really innocuous scene. Is that the word I mean? That's an excellent word. I'm really proud of myself. It's a scene where Rose is doing laundry. Okay. Because she's walking through the house, the camera's following her. She's listening to Ludovico Einaudi, who, big fan. She goes outside, I think she's getting the mail. And when she's walking mm-hmm. back to the house, she hears that the music has changed to tiptoe through the window. Uh, oh my song. god that song that song um and then she sees a little uh, boy she sees a little boy dancing through her window so she runs in to see where he is and then things continue from there but the reason i enjoy that scene so much is you actually see the little boy earlier in the scene oh. he is hiding in a corner and as the camera <gasps> is following rose Byrne collecting the washing to do the washing he is standing uh-huh. with his back to the camera facing into a corner that's so cool and i am a big fan of hidden moments in films i love an easter egg i love things that are not meant to be obvious one of the things i loved so Mm -hmm. much about haunting of hill house was the fact that they had ghosts throughout the entire series hidden in plain sight and you never saw them and i think it just gives you the sense of uneasiness without you really knowing why you feel uneasy absolutely your yeah. subconscious is taking in what you're seeing but you're not actively seeing it and that's the reason that i love this scene in particular but it goes from having the hidden little boy to having ludovic mm-hmm. Wainaudi to having the music change to one of the scariest songs in the world uh, and also it's rose byrne who i really enjoy so absolutely yeah that's probably why that is in my top three that's a very good one yeah thank you that's a, that's a very good You can point. watch that scene in isolation on YouTube. Highly recommend having a wee look. Well, I might not do that right now because I'm going to have nightmares because you sang that song. Okay, well. So. <laughs> <laughs> Apologies. That's okay. It's a very creepy song. The music department outdid themselves on that one. They very much did. Um, well, I'm going to round us off by going for 
an absolute classic. An absolute classic. And when I say classic, I mean in that this film is going to be 100 years old in a few years' time. I can guess what it is. <laughs> I think. You probably can. Yeah. Because I am just, I'm on brand this week. Um, and I'm going to say that one of my top favourite horror film scenes has got to be the unmasking scene in the 1924 Universal produced The Phantom of the Opera. Okay, I know a lot of people like give silent films a lot of flack nowadays because, yes, by our standards, <laughs> they are rather hard and a little bit uncomfortable to watch mm -hmm. because the style of acting is completely over the top, even over the top by our theatrical standards yeah. today. Now that we have naturalism and realism and all of that jazz. Um, but The Phantom of the Opera is an absolute masterpiece of a horror film. Um, it's just so good. It just the whole, it's creepy, it's atmospheric. Um, and that scene, even now, is still just creepy and yeah. it's just unnerving and like Lon Chaney what a guy like self like self-taught special effects makeup went through hell literal hell to portray that character to the extent he had like wadding in his mouth fake teeth um pulled his nose up using wire so he was yeah. yeah literally bleeding underneath the makeup at the end of the day and that whole scene you know it's you know it's coming but let i can understand so the bit that like the, the legend is is that 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 scene was considered so terrifying when it was first released that people in the audience actually fainted and you know yeah. what I could kind of understand why. Yeah. Because <laughs> it's, it's genuinely really quite scary. Go and watch the old classic Universal horror films because that's where it all started. Yeah. That's that what it's all, all started. about. <laughs> yeah. De like, definitely go and do it. Although I know apparently Universal are planning to redo all of their old horror films and I swear to God if they bugger them up, I'm not going to be happy. We'll have some stern words. They already messed up the mummy with you know who. Like three years ago or whatever. That was a flop. Yeah. Not the nineties ones. The nineties ones, ones were good. Classics. Yeah. Um we're talking about the ones with um the Scientologist in it. Yeah, he who should not be named. Well, shall we fire in with story time? Absolutely, let's go. Because it's ten to ten. Fan friggin' tastic. <laughs> so we're both gonna hit Whoops. the wall soon. <laughs> well, glad I'm going first. <laughs> hey. uh, <laughs> uh, so I changed my story very last minute I had something in mind and then yes. I decided to change the story I was planning on covering was covered elsewhere very very recently absolutely um, and I didn't want to step on any toes so I've decided to do the story of the Edinburgh Seven are you familiar? I don't know anything about this. Fantastic. Well, this will make no sense to you until I tell you more. Fantastic. 
So, one of the best stories never told when we consider the historical fight for equality for both genders is that of the Edinburgh Seven. These women predate, predate even the formidable and maybe better known Dr Elsie Ingalls in taking on the misogyny within the establishment to prove the worth of women. I actually didn't know an awful lot about Dr Elsie Ingalls, but I have done quite a bit of research since, and she is very, very important in the fight for equality for women. So I will actually come back to her. Uh, but oh. people, some people seem to know more about her than they do the Edinburgh Seven. Uh, but in fact, Dr Elsie would not have been as successful in her own career were it not for her seven predecessors that I will now tell you about. Oh, okay. Sophia Jex Blake wanted to be a doctor in a time when it was unthinkable for a woman to be one. After a period of study in Edinburgh, Jex Blake travelled to the US in 1865 to learn about women's education. Following her dream of becoming a doctor, she was refused entry to Harvard on gender grounds and received a rejection letter reading, quote, there is no provision for the education of women in any department of this university. For God's sake. Yes. These are the best times in history. <laughs> <laughs> Dripping in sarcasm. <sighs> Sophia... Uh, Jex Blake's career as a trailblazer for the rights of women to practice medicine in Britain began in March 1869 when she wrote asking Professor, Professor, Professor J.J. Balfour, Dean of the Medical Faculty at University of Edinburgh, permission to attend medical lectures during the summer session. And this went to vote. It went to vote? It went to vote. So it seems <laughs> that there was a kind of council I think it was referred to as the university court that actually made decisions that were of this nature they made decisions on the university's behalf okay Sir James Young Simpson who I may think is who the maternity home in Edinburgh is named after because I was born in Simpsons and that would make sense I don't mean I was born yellow with blue hair I was born in a place (laughs) called Simpsons so James, Sir James Young Simpson supported her, as did Professor James Sim, but on the condition that women were restricted to obstetrics and gynaecology. And Robert Christensen, a professor of Materia Medica and Therapeutics, said the poor intellectual ability and stamina of women would lower professional standards. Oh, what a guy. What a guy. What a guy. And he's got a stupid name. You'd think it would be Christensen, but it's not. It's Christensen. <laughs> stupid name. <laughs> they dropped a letter somewhere. Against all odds, the vote <gasps> went in her favour. Wow. Oh, yes. All seemed well until Claude Muirhead, senior assistant physician at the Royal Infirmary, supported by a petition with the names of some 200 students, appealed to the university court to overturn the vote. It was safe to assume that men and women would be taught anatomy and surgery separately. It was decided that teaching a separate class just for her would be too difficult and expensive. So they wanted to overturn it because they wanted to disguise their misogyny as a concern over budget. Hmm. That doesn't sound like anything that's happening today. No, no, no. How strange. Very strange. Oh my God. Therefore, you will be unsurprised to hear that the decision to allow Jex Blake to study medicine was overturned. 
Did they literally have nothing better to do with their time than to sign a petition? <laughs> Playing chess and staring out of windows. They didn't have TVs, so what else were they doing? Uh, <laughs> David Mason, professor of rhetoric and English literature, and David Russell, editor of The Scotsman, were friends and supporters of Sophia Jacks Blake. Mason, who represented Jacks Blake, thought the university court could be persuaded that the expense of teaching women separately could be made viable if there were more women to teach. Okay. Russell published the story of the controversy in the Scotsman newspaper, which encouraged more women to apply. And they did. Quick as a flash, there were seven women matriculating in medicine. Ta-da! Woohoo! Initially, these were Isabel Thorne, Edith Pesci, Matilda Chaplin, and Helen Evans. And Mary Anderson and Emily Bovell joined shortly afterwards. They became known as the Edinburgh Seven. Oh, okay, I get it. Yeah. Oh, amazing. Uh, Jax Blake and Pesci moved into lodgings at 15 Buckley Place, and this became a hub of activity, probably where they all went and studied together and had little sleepovers. Ah. Uh, <laughs> they matriculated <laughs> in 1869 and the university wasted no time in upping the matriculation fees for them and for them alone oh how kind of them so they decided that making it more expensive for women would make it, fewer women want to actually join in this whole oh, education sake. thing and a loophole where university teachers were permitted were permitted but not required to teach women meant the women had to arrange lectures for themselves and Sophia Jex Blake was at the helm. She was the one who organised most of this for everybody okay. else. But this was only the start of their problems. Oh, no. Their classes... Oh, I'm not surprised. No, I'm not surprised either. Their classes, which were taken, of course, separately were graded differently to the men, even though the lectures were identical, but it resu resulted in diminished scholarship opportunities. So they were, leave they were ending up with results that showed them to be poor poorer students. It was clear that the male students were driven mad by jealousy. The men made life as difficult as possible for the Edinburgh Seven, shutting doors in their faces, howling at them and behaving aggressively, which sounds like a day in high school for me, sweetie. Um, but that's a story for another day. Events, <laughs> events came to a head at their anatomy exam. On the 18th of November, 1870, the women were to attend an anatomy exam at Surgeon's Hall in Edinburgh, where I also sat some exams. Woo! Yay! Yes. As they approached the building, they were confronted by a large crowd of male students and several hundred onlookers. They were verbally abused and pelted with refuse, and the gates to the building were slammed in their face. They were eventually able to gain access to the hall. Some resources state that this was access granted by janitorial staff, but others say that it was sympathetic male students that helped them. But that may be to cover their own butts by being like, yes, yeah. we helped. You maybe didn't. What are they angry about? Are the they boobs. just angry? <laughs> <laughs> I don't know. I genuinely don't know. But like, 
like, what? Why are they? Why are they angry? Because it's not going to affect them because they're men. And it was just if you were a man, it was just better in the Victorian era either way. Yeah, exactly. <laughs> to be honest, it's the threat of having somebody female standing next to you whilst working. Surely that's not such a horrific thought. Exactly. Uh, and these well, men I, probably I all just... had wives. Well, exactly. I just don't. I just don't understand what their basis for their anger was, because it's not like these seven women are affecting their education or job prospects in any way. Because chances are they would have got first pickings of the jobs. Of course they would. And if it was seven men, they wouldn't be pelting them with no rubbish. Totally, absolutely. It does not. Uh. It doesn't make any sense this is just no. as grim to me as any of the murder cases we've discussed it's I, just... agree. I agree it's making me very angry yeah i, I do apologize <laughs> um, it's not your fault yeah well you, you wouldn't hit me with a rotten apple you are not wrong not on purpose <laughs> not, on purpose. not on purpose that's for sure um several Disruptive students were ejected from the building to allow the examination to proceed. However, it was further interrupted when a live sheep, which is the pet sheep of the college known as Poor Melee, was shoved in the room through a back door. <laughs> they had a pet okay, sheep. I wasn't... <laughs> That's a bit... Sheep are great. They are great. After the examination was complete, a group of Irish students known as the Irish Brigade escorted the women out of Surgeon's Hall safely, although they were by this time also spattered with mud and bits of rubbish. And I would also like to say that a second ago, when I said that there was a live sheep shoved in the room, when I read this initially, I thought it said that a, um, a shaved, they shaved a live sheep. They didn't shove a live sheep. Um, and that would have been an entirely different, different experience. Story. Yeah. Exactly. Oh, yes. Anyways... The riot that was happening because of these women taking exams represented the culmination of months of harassment and bullying that the women had faced during their studies. They had obscenities shouted at them in the streets, doors slammed in their face, both literally and metaphorically. And dirty or threatening letters were sent to them as part of a campaign of abuse. For God's sake. After the event... Sophia Jex Blake was to claim that responsibility for inciting the riot lay with a student by the name Mr. Craig, which led to his filing a defamation writ against her in January 1871. It has further been suggested that the students who instigated or took part in the riots did so with the support of medical faculty, particularly from Professor Robert Christensen, who you'll remember from before, was the one that said that women have no place in studying for whom craig worked as class assistant and who was explicitly opposed to the presence of women in medicine jex blake defended herself against craig's writ of defamation in court with her colleagues serving as witnesses and although the court found in favor of the claimant they awarded him just one farthing instead of the one hundred thousand pounds that he no 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 i can't read numbers They gave him just one farthing instead of the £1,000 that he'd requested. (laughs) (laughs) No, no, but he got a farthing, which Uh, is nothing. And so this was... 
this result was seen as a victory for the Edinburgh Seven, even though they technically lost. Excellent. Yes. Following the riots, the media condemned the actions of the rioters, and the Scotsman said, quote, a certain class of medical students are doing their utmost to make sure that the name of medical students synonymous with all that is cowardly and degrading. It is imperative upon all men to come forward and express their detestation of the proceedings which have characterised and dishonoured the opposition to ladies pursuing the study of medicine in Edinburgh. So the Scotsman has for a long time been very much for women. That's good. Excellent. I don't know where they stand That's a now. very... But hopefully good. <laughs> Although that was a very long-winded way of saying, please stop <laughs> bullying the female students. Yeah, just go and be nice and stop being so horrible to the women. Exactly. Simple. Like, the title literally could have just been Be Nice. Yes. Be nice, <laughs> be kind, live, laugh, love. That's what we're about. <laughs> yeah. I know, same. <laughs> the riots and their negative portrayal in the national media subsequently led to not only an increased awareness of the Edinburgh Seven, but to a rise in public sympathy for the women and their fight to study medicine. However, the situation at the university was a different matter entirely. As they <laughs> continued their fight to be taught and for access to wards, the university did not but discriminate and ultimately ousted them just four years after their matriculation. So they were, they didn't complete their studies at Edinburgh. They got booted. Wow. Yep. In 1873, the Court of Session ruled in favour of the university's right to refuse women degrees and also concluded the women should not even have been allowed to study at all. I don't understand what they're angry about. I know, I know. I feel like I want to start my own suffragette movement, even though we're in a better place. <laughs> I'm, like, yeah. I'm kind of uh, retro, retroactively wanting to do something. Exactly. I'm just like, I don't understand where your basis of anger is. If they'd killed someone, I'd maybe understand. <laughs> I agree. Maybe they should have killed someone. They'd still be on their side. Uh, so Professor oh, no. Robert Christensen, as we've already spoken about him, a former head of the British Medical Association, said that he thought women should become midwives rather than doctors. So he did think there was a place for women, but he probably didn't even consider midwifery medicine because he's already said women have no place in medicine. So Exactly. His mind's a muddle. Uh, he deserves a slap. More than a slap. <laughs> Dr. Chloe Kennedy, who teaches criminal law at Edinburgh University, has written an alternative ruling where the women win their case for the Scottish Feminist Judgments Project, which uses laws of the time to imagine how things might have been different if the judge had adopted a feminist perspective. She oh. said, There were arguments that the university had been set up, designed for, and exclusively served men at that point, and the university may not have had the power to grant degrees. But these days, the University of Edinburgh has around about 60% uh, women for their under undergraduates. So That's amazing. Yeah. So University of Edinburgh has really flipped things on its head. I love that. Well done, Dr. Kennedy. That's super interesting. Fighting a losing battle in Edinburgh, the war for equality moved to London. Jex Blake played a key role in setting up the London School of Medicine for Women, but it wasn't until 1876 that women actually had somewhere to sit their exams, when the Enabling Bill 
gave medical examining bodies the right to admit women. Jex Blake and Pesci did their MD. They managed to get their medical degree in Bern, Switzerland, and sat the Irish exams with the College of Physicians in Dublin. And they finally became registered doctors in Britain. But what happened to the seven women I hear you cry? Well, let me tell you. So Sophia Jex Blake, she was the driving force behind the campaign to secure women's access to university education. She Mm -hmm. received her MD in Bern, as I say, in 1877 and became the first registered female doctor in Scotland. She established two medical schools for women, one in London and one in Edinburgh. And she also established the Edinburgh Hospital and Dispensary for Women and Children, which later became Brunsfield Hospital. Elizabeth Thorne was the mother of four at the time when she joined the campaign in Edinburgh in 1869. Although she never gained her MD, she did serve as Honorary Secretary to the London School of Medicine for Women for 31 years, from 1877 to 1908. Thorne was identified by Lucy Sewell as being the woman student most likely to make the best doctor. (laughs) Then we have Edith Pesci. Despite coming top of the chemistry exams in 1870, Edith underplayed quite how intelligent she was. When she wrote to Jex Blake in 1869 requesting to join the campaign, she determined that she could offer little more than moderate abilities and a good, sen- a good share of perseverance, but feared that she was deficient in most subjects of study. As I've just said, Pesci did gain her MD from the University of Bern, in 1877 and spent much of her medical career in India. She was the first woman to be elected to the Senate of the University of Bombay and was a tireless campaigner for expanding educational opportunities for Indian women and girls. She returned to England in 1905 and was active in the women's suffrage movement until her death in 1908. They're all excellent women. Now we have Matilda Charlotte Chaplin Ayrton. After leaving Edinburgh, Matilda studied medicine in London, Paris, and Ireland. She travelled to Japan, where she opened a school for midwives and was an author of anthropological studies. She died in London in 1883 at the horrendously young age of 37. Oh, what a shame. Helen de Lacey Evans was a young widow when she joined the campaign. She never received an MD, MD, but she was part of the founding executive committee of the Edinburgh Medical School for Women and vice president of the committee for the Edinburgh Hospital and Dispensary for Women and Children. Evans was also one of the first female members of the St Andrews School Board, which was a position that she held for 15 years. She was the mother of a suffragist and feminist campaigner, campaigner called Helen Archdale, who seems to be quite a notable uh, suffragette. She suffragist. She was kind of very involved. Amazing. Mary Adamson Anderson Marshall gained her medical degree in Paris. Her thesis on mitral stemosis was considered by many to be a significant contribution to the subject. She worked alongside her sister-in-law Elizabeth Garrett Anderson at the New Hospital for Women and opened a dispensary in Notting Hill. Marshall moved to Cannes in 1895, where she continued to practice until her death in 1910. And lastly, we have Emily Bovell, who gained her MD also in Paris in 1877. Does that mean that they were there at the same time? That would be so cute. Oh, didn't say when Mary got hers, but maybe it was the same time. 
Maybe it was. In 1880, she was nominated by the French government for the Officier d'Académie, an award rarely conferred upon women, in recognition for her services to the medical profession. In 1881, as a consequence of her poor health, she and her husband gave up their practice in London and moved to Nice. She established her own practice at which she worked until her death in 1885. Eventually, in 1894, the University of Edinburgh decided to allow women to graduate and the first female doctors graduated in 1896. So they weren't far behind when all this happened to the Edinburgh Seven. Progress was still to be made, however, as they still had to organise their own tuition. Now, let's skip on forward to modern day. On the 23rd of September, 2020... 2020! Edinburgh University <laughs> unveiled a new artwork to commemorate the Edinburgh Seven. It's a reimagining of the 1632 Rembrandt painting, The Anatomy Lesson of Nicholas Tulp. This new version was created by photographer Lawrence Winram and features seven present day students and hangs proudly in the Sophia Jex Blake common room in the Chancellor's building at Edinburgh Bioquarter. The seven present-day students are the very same seven that in 2019 accepted honorary degrees that were finally awarded to the Edinburgh Seven, 150 years after they became the first women to matriculate in a British university. Oh my God, that is amazing. I absolutely love that, honest to God. That's just brilliant. Yes, thank you, Edinburgh thank you. University. And thank you, thank you, Edinburgh University. God's sake. <laughs> so, Dr. Elsie Ingalls, who I've already mentioned, was born August 16th, 1864 in India, where her father was working as a magistrate in the Indian Civil Service as Chief Commissioner of Oud through the East India Company. Lots of details, I don't know what any of it means. What a title. Oh, yeah. <laughs> Elsie had the good fortune to have enlightened parents for the time who considered the education of a daughter as important as that of a son and unusually also had them schooled in India because that's obviously where they were based. Elsie and her sister Eva had 40 dolls and they used to practice fake medicine on these dolls by putting little dots that represented measles and they would then treat the dolls for measles. Really cute. Oh. <laughs> Elsie's father was religious and used his position in India to encourage native economic development, spoke, about, spoke out against infanticide and promoted female education. After her father retired, they returned to Edinburgh where she began private education in Edinburgh and finishing school in Paris. Elsie's decision to study medicine was delayed because she had to nurse her mother who had scarlet fever and she did this until Ooh. her death in 1885. Um, and at this point, she then felt obliged to stay in Edinburgh with her father, who was now alone. Mm-hmm. In 1887, the Edinburgh School of Medicine for Women was opened by Dr. Sophia Jex Blake. <gasps> yes. oh, okay. And Elsie began studying there. Elsie and her father eventually founded the Edinburgh College for Medicine for Women under the guidance of the Scottish Association for the Medical Education of Women. LC sponsors also arranged clinical training for female students at the Glasgow Royal Infirmary. In 1892, she obtained the triple qualification, which means that she became a licentiate for the Royal College of Physicians in Edinburgh, 
the Royal College of Surgeons of Edinburgh and the Faculty of Physicians and Surgeons of Glasgow. So that's called a triple qualification. (laughs) Appalled by the standard of care and lack of specialisation in the needs of female patients, she obtained a post at the New Hospital for Women in London and then at the leading maternity hospital called the Rotunda in Dublin. Her return to Edinburgh to study was both an excellent advance in her education, but also had a surprise massive blow in her personal life. When she got back to Edinburgh, she became carer to her dying father, who eventually succumbed in March 1894. Elsie later acknowledged that, quote, whatever I am, whatever I have done, I owe it all to my father. So he, on a complete flip of of the coin of the student males from Uh Edinburgh University, was just complete opposite of the men that we've already spoken about. So, excellent man. Not all Victorian men were bad. Not all of them. (laughs) Despite what we tell you on this podcast. Exactly. (laughs) There was the odd good few out there. Just a few. In 1894, she completed her medical... She completed her medical degree and became a lecturer in gynaecology at the Medical College for Women and then set up a medical practice with Jesse McLaren McGregor, who had been a fellow student, and recognising women and children's medicine was under-resourced, opened a maternity hospital named The Hospice, which was for poor women alongside a midwifery resource and training centre initially in George Square. That is so good. And I also love, I've, I love that it's women advocating women's health yes absolutely absolutely it's not it's not men lecturing women the way that it should be even now men do not have the right to decide what a woman does with her body thank Thank you you. thank you for that you're so welcome a philanthropist elsie often waived the fees owed to her and would pay for the patient's care to recuperate by the seaside and polio was a particular childhood illness that she was concerned with. Um, Elsie was a consultant at Bruntsfield Hospital, which I've already mentioned. Oh, yeah. Ta-da! So many links. And despite yeah. a disagreement between Elsie and the hospital management, the hospice joined forces with them at Bruntsfield in 1910. Elsie's surgical skills were recognised by colleagues and she was described as quiet, calm and collected, and never at a loss, skillful in her manipulations and able to cope with any emergency. So she sounds like an absolute gem of a doctor. She absolutely does. Dissatisfaction with the standard of medical care given to women led to her political activism through the suffrage movement. While working towards her medical go- go- why is that a hard word? While working towards <laughs> her medical degree in the 1890s, she was the secretary of the Edinburgh National Society for Women's Suffrage with the support of her father. What a guy. What? He is a good guy. Yeah. Elsie worked closely with Millicent Fawcett, who is the leader of the National Union of Women's Suffrage Societies, or the NUWSS. It's easier just to say the full title. Um, <laughs> unless you say the news is... The nooses. Probably, they probably didn't call it the nooses. Uh, and uh, yes, yeah, so she worked closely with her and spoke at events all over the country. That's so cool. Yes. In 1906, Elsie Ingalls was to the Scottish groups what Mrs. Fawcett was to the English. She was described as courageous, sweet voice with the eyes of a seer 
a radiant smile when her lips were not firmly closed with a fixity of purpose such as would warn off unwarrantable opposition or objections. So she was, she was ready to battle opposition, but yeah. then she'd whap out a smile if she wanted to. She didn't do it on anyone else's terms but her own. <laughs> <laughs> uh, despite Elsie's already notable achievements, it was her efforts to treat the wounded at the front in the First World War that brought her fame. Oh my God, she literally did everything. She did it all. She did it all. Elsie was instrumental in setting up, despite government resistance, the Scottish Women's Hospitals for Foreign Service Committee, which is an organisation funded by the women's suffrage movement with the express aim of providing all-female staffed relief hospitals for the Allied war effort, including paid doctors and technical staff and others who worked as volunteers. So she wanted to make sure there were hospitals out there that were all women. Everybody who worked Amazing. There. Yeah. Elsie initially believed that they would receive funding for the Scottish women's hospitals from the Scottish Red Cross, but the head of the Scottish Red Cross, Sir George Beetson, denied the request, stating he could have, quote, nothing to say to a hospital staffed by women. <laughs> Here's another one. Another sir. I've got to have a word with the king of the time. Absolutely. Why are you donning these people these titles? And this is like 1914 now. Yeah, we're Come cracking on. on in time. Cheesy peeps. <laughs> Uh, so to help get the ball rolling for the SWH, as I shall henceforth call it, Elsie used £100 of her own money. Millicent Fawcett invited her to speak about SWH in London and by the next month she had had her first £1,000 and the goal was £50,000. So she still had a way to go. Mm-hmm. The organisation was active in sending, eventually, 14 teams to Belgium, France, Serbia and Russia during the First World War. Elsie approached the Royal Army Medical Corps to offer them a ready-made medical unit staffed by qualified women. The War Office told her, quote, go home and sit still. Oh my God. Oh. Sh- there should be a trigger warning for this episode. <laughs> <laughs> It just makes me so angry because she's what they're doing would be of genuine help. Yeah, yeah. To the front line. Yeah. But because they're women, that invalidates everything they're trying to do. Yeah. I this just was don't. Just over a hundred years ago. I just don't understand, and yeah. also, like. The First World War was pretty bloody. I don't think they should be picking and choosing who they want to work with. Get the help where you can get it. (laughs) Exactly. And let me tell you, the UK might have been the idiots to turn this down because the French government were sensible and they showed interest. Oh, excellent. they put a unit that were being offered to them by Elsie in France and Elsie herself led a unit to Serbia. So she was like, I'm not going to take no for an answer from my government. I'm going to go to other governments. So Elsie went with the team sent to Serbia where her presence and work in improving hygiene reduced typhus and other epidemics that had been raging there. The hospital in Serbia was in the midst of a typhus outbreak, which eventually took the lives of four of the SWH staff, which include nurse Louisa Jordan after whom the COVID-19 pandemic hospital in Glasgow was named in 2020. Oh my God! Yeah. 
So we're bringing it back to Glasgow. That's amazing. Oh, poor Louisa. <laughs> yeah, poor Louisa. But I mean, I'm glad she's got her her name's come up, which is nice. Exactly. And to think that nobody had ever heard of that woman nope. prior to this friggin' pandemic. Yeah, totally. Um, so that's a lovely little homage to her. Oh. Four SWH units in Serbia were established, but in 1915, Elsace was captured when the Austro-Hungarian and German forces took over the region as she had stayed behind with others to repatriate the wounded. Elsace and others were eventually uh, repatriated via neutral Switzerland in February 1916, but upon reaching Scotland, she at once began organising funds for the Scottish Women's Hospital team in Russia. So she was like, I'm not going to take a rest. I'm just going to keep cracking on. So she headed with the team for Russia in 1916. Two SWH units were overcome in the chaos of a retreat with Elsie travelling via Dobruja and Brela on the Danube. My geographical knowledge is not good enough to know how to pronounce any of these things. <laughs> You're trying, that's all the classics. That's the main thing. With a mixture of people in flight, including families, doctors, soldiers, and a Romanian officer who had been in Glasgow, so he was like, I know all about British customs. So she was like, nice. Love love that. And this strangely comforted Elsie to think that her homeland was there, quiet, strong, and invincible behind everything and everyone. That was a little quote. So that's nice. Uh, At Brela, with just six other doctors, only one surgeon, Elsie was involved in treating 11,000 wounded soldiers and sailors many of whom were behind a later letter in tribute to Elise written in the name of the Russian citizen soldiers, which was written at Easter to express sincere gratitude for all the care and attention bestowed upon us. And we bow low before the tireless and wonderful work of yourself and your personnel, which we see every day directed towards the good of the soldiers allied to your country. Quite right too. Yes. Oh, that's so lovely. So nice. Sadly, Elsie got news that her own nephew had been shot in the head and blinded on the day that she was leaving for the Ukraine, which caused her to question the eternal battle of good and evil put about in wartime, as Elsie wrote to her sister expressing in her sorrow for her nephew, ending, quote, We are just here in it, and whatever we lose, it is for the right we are standing. It is all terrible and awful, and I don't believe we can dis- disentangle it all in our minds just now. The only thing is just to go on doing our bit. Excellent. Elsie lasted a summer in Russia before she too was forced to return in poor health to the United Kingdom. And sadly, she died the day after returning to the UK of bowel cancer. Oh no. Her final journey with Serb officers being evacuated saw her stand on deck saying farewell to each one in quiet dignity. She is buried in Dean Cemetery in Edinburgh. The Scotsman newspaper wrote that it was an, quote, occasion for an impressive public tribute. Winston Churchill said of Elsie and her nurses that they will shine in history. A memorial fountain was erected in Ingalls in Elsie's memory in Serbia, commemorating her work for the country. A plaque marking her pre-war surgery from 1898 to 1814 was put up at 8 Walker Street, Edinburgh. A portrait of her is included in the Mural of Heroic Women by Walter P. Starmer, unveiled in 1921 in the Church of St. Jude on the Hill, which is in London. 
1922, a large tablet to her memory was erected in the North Isle of St Giles Cathedral in Edinburgh. Uh, and there is a nursing career development scheme in NHS Lothian that is called the Elsies. Elsie Engels was one of the first women in Scotland who had finished high education and was a pioneer of medicine. She fought energetically against prejudice for social and political emancipation of women in Britain. She was also a tireless volunteer, courageous organiser of the Scottish Women's Hospitals and a dedicated humanitarian. Unfortunately, Elsie Ingalls did not live long enough to see the triumph of some of her ideas, but she has had a tremendous influence on social trends in our country. In Scotland, she became a doctor. In Serbia, she became a saint. And in 2020, it is noted that Serbia's first palliative care hospice will also be named after Elsie Ingalls. And that is the story of the Edinburgh Seven and a woman who would not have managed to achieve what she did had it not been for the Edinburgh Seven, Elsie Ingalls. I, that was absolutely brilliant. I had no idea that was a thing ever. Yeah. I, I mean, I was at Edinburgh University and I didn't know it. Yeah, that's absolutely amazing. And good on those women. Yeah. There is also a plaque that exists for the Edinburgh Seven uh, mm -hmm. that marks where the riots happened. Which is just, it's just so crazy. That's what I just don't understand. Is that I just, maybe I just, we just, we struggle to imagine a time where men are angry at the thought of women receiving an education or a higher education. I shall just we say. don't understand. Like, what did these men think of their mothers and their wives and their daughters? Yeah. Were, because it just screams hate to me. Uh, no. Yeah. Well, that's what, it, that's 100% what it was. And I just don't, I don't understand because their anger is unfounded. There is no reason for it. There I were just, the, the few uh, good men in the story, the ones who, although they wanted to put restrictions in place, they were for the mm -hmm. women studying. And then there was also the Irish Brigade who helped the women get out from the yeah. exam. That was good. Then, of course, Elsie's dad. Mm -hmm. That was a good one. Um, yep. So the good men were around. It's just they chose not to, most of them chose not to get involved. Exactly. And it's just a shame that most of the good men weren't the ones running the universities. Absolutely. Yeah. Because that's fully where the issue starts. It starts at the top and trickles yeah. all the way down to yeah. the staff. To the staff below. Probably still to an extent today. One hundred percent. One hundred percent. In some, if not all, institutions. Um because let's be honest. Universities, particularly the ancient universities that we still have in this world, that's like all your St Andrews and Glasgow's and all, all the ones that have been around since forever, practically, st still all run by men. Yeah. Largely. Be the way for a long time, I'm sure. Yeah, so still get... The, the, the Edinburgh Seven were smashing glass ceilings in yeah. the 1860s and it, we're probably still going to have to do it now. <laughs> In yeah. the 2020s, we're just continuing, literally continuing on their work. Yeah. Um, but that's amazing and good on them because that took 
a hell of a lot of bravery on yeah, their totally. part. Yeah, totally, totally. Uh, Sophia was having none of it. She was, um, she was kind of the the one at the helm for most of the whole thing. And, yeah. Uh, yeah. So good for her. Well done. Well done. Well yeah. done, all of them. Yeah, absolutely. For setting the standard, because chances are. It, women would not have got into that university for a very long time. Yeah, and it if wasn't... If those men had their it way. It wasn't a horrific length of time after that that women were allowed to be enrolled. Mm-hmm. Um, so their, the work that they did set the foundations for a not-too-far-away success, if you know what I mean. Yeah, definitely. So, but yeah, that was... A, that was a very good one. I know you changed your story Thank last you. minute, but that was a very good choice. Should I just kick off? Just do it. Just do it. Okay, so this week I'm going to be talking about a place in Glasgow. Because I like like my places in Glasgow. It's also a place that is free to visit. And it is a place that even when its gates are locked, there is still people in it. Hmm. Okay. (laughs) Okay. We riddle for you there. Um, so this is Glasgow's City of the Dead. This Ooh. is the necropolis. Yay! It I was, was only a matter I'd... of time. Yeah, it's only a matter of time. So here we are. We are um, cemetery enthusiasts, after all, which is not. It's just quite an unusual claim to have. But here we be. I'm proud of it. Here we be. So. Uh, The Glasgow Necropolis is situated at the north end of the city centre and it lies adjacent to Glasgow Cathedral. So, two gothic places for the price of one. There you go. Ding, ding, ding. (laughs) Um, The name is derived from the ancient Greek word necropolis, but it's spelled with a K instead of a C. Okay, yeah, that makes it Greek. Yep, yep. Um, Which literally means city of the dead. So that's what that word does mean. Oh. It's obviously like... Necro, death, and Opolis city. There you go. Um, So the land was originally purchased in 1650 by the Merchant's House, but with part of the area, part of the area is really rocky and it's very hilly. Um, So it was deemed unfit to be developed upon. So they weren't going to build on it. So instead they planted fir trees and it was to be used as a public park to be known as Fur Park. <laughs> so, oh. Pretty self-explanatory there. <laughs> yeah, makes sense. Makes sense. Um, in 1804, however, the Scottish fir trees begin to die and are subsequently replaced with willow and elm trees. And a wee fun fact for you. Mm-hmm. Elm trees are associated with the life cycle and in Celtic mythology are associated with the underworld. And willow trees are associated with spirituality, often symbolising strength and stability, as well as emotions such as grief, sadness and the comprehension of the consequences of love and loss. It's quite apt trees. Very apt trees. Also, willow trees are my favourite favorite i do you know i would probably agree with you there with mine as well yeah Yeah, i do enjoy a willow tree yeah just they're they're very graceful trees also my favorite character from buffy 
so I've yeah. not watched enough of Buffy to make a educated mm. decision on that. Get in that. Get on that. <laughs> oh God. Uh, so in 1825, the first foundation stone of the John Knox Monument is laid. So for those of you who don't know, uh, Knox was one of the leaders of the Scottish Reformation and he was not a fan of women holding any sort of power. No, no. I was. I did do a little bit of research into him because let's be honest, he'll probably come up at a later date on this podcast, and he's often construed as like a raging misogynist. And I did a little bit of reading, and some people trying to argue the case that he wasn't. He actually, well, they said he enjoyed the company of women, which I feel like is a very different phrase, and that doesn't exactly mm-hmm. stop you from being a misogynist because he didn't yep. have anything nice to say about any of the female queens that were in charge when he was about. He really didn't like Mary Queen of Scots. Yeah, they had a lot yeah. of problems. They, yeah. Uh, so, not a fan. No. <laughs> not a fan. So, um, it is in 1831, there is the first mention of the land being adapted into a burial ground. So John Strang, who was the Chamberlain of the Merchant's House, wrote... Oh, I need to try and get this word right. Okay, I'll try again. <laughs> so John, <laughs> John Strang, the Chamberlain of the Merchant's House, wrote Necropolis Glasgowenus. Because Glasgow has a Latin equivalent, apparently. Why not? Um, this, <laughs> this was a paper also known as Thoughts on Death and Moral Stimulus. He commented on the park's suitability to be adapted into a Père Lachaise-style cemetery. So Père Lachaise is the largest cemetery in Paris, and it measures at around 110 acres of land. Wow. Yeah. Um, established in 1804, it was designed by Alexandre Théodore Brognard, who used English-style gardens as inspiration. So the cemetery was designed with uneven paths, lined carved stones, and is adorned with diverse trees and plants. And it looks very, very pretty. I, for the two times I've been in Paris, I've never actually been. Yeah, it's the kind of place that I would probably love to go, but yeah. um, I also have never. Yeah. So Strang stated that the necropolis should be, quote, Respectful to the dead, safe and sanitary to the living, dedicated to the genius of memory, and to extend religious and moral feeling. There you go. Mm -hmm. In 1831, a competition to be the one to convert Fir Park into a cemetery is launched in the newspapers, to which 16 entries were made. That sounds like a competition you would be all over. I would have been so into that. (laughs) I think I would have won. You'd have been sending in wee sketches and everything. So David Bryce of Edinburgh won first place um, and his brother John, who was based in Glasgow, was second. Um, George Milne was designated superintendent and head gardener of the project. The necropolis was always conceived as being an interdenominational burial ground. So it wasn't just for those that were part of the Christian faith. Um, the first burial in 1832 was a man by the name of Joseph Levi, who was a jeweller, and he was Jewish. Oh, nice. 
Yeah, and in 1833, Elizabeth Miles was buried in the necropolis, making her the first Christian burial. And there's a whole section in the necropolis that is um, Jewish burial ground and has a beautiful memorial section. I think the last time I was there, I hope I remember and collect, I think if you go across the bridge, you make a sharp left and it's down at the bottom of the hill. Yeah, it's kind of right right by the wall, I think. Yeah, um, but it's absolutely lovely and it's yeah. kind of hidden away, but definitely go and have a look at it because it is lovely and it's nice and quiet and yeah. Um, so extensions to the necropolis took place in 1877 and in 1892-93, making the cemetery 37 acres. Since its opening, 50,000 individuals have been buried there, not all of them with a headstone or a plaque. Oh. There'd be a lot of people in that graveyard. <laughs> yeah. That's why it's a hill. That's why it's a hill. <laughs> yeah. Also, three and a half thousand tombs at the necropolis were constructed with brick walls and are up to 14 feet deep. That's like That's two of you and then some. Yeah. 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 And they didn't have diggers in those days. No, they had human diggers. They had human diggers. So there you go. So the necropolis's main entrance, which is accessible from the cathedral precinct, is across a bridge, designed by David Hamilton and completed in 1836. It it crossed over what was the Moldenar Burn, although it's now Wishart Street. Yeah. (laughs) It's a road now, (laughs) because the water's now subterranean. Uh, This bridge is actually nicknamed the Bridge of Size. There's one of them in, in Venice. That's just what I was going on to say, oh, sorry, yeah. Sorry, so, sorry, sorry, yeah, sorry. It's okay. <laughs> it's an allusion to the bridge of the same name in Venice, Italy. And it is so called in Glasgow because it was the route that funeral processions would follow into the necropolis whilst they took their loved one to the final resting place. So it's kind of like the bridge has got sad connotations, basically, yeah. which is where it gets its name. So It is sad. Also, it's a very creepy bridge. It's very atmospheric around there. Um, The the necropolis was given to Glasgow City Council in 1966, who continue to maintain it. Monuments present in the cemetery have been designed by architects such as Alexander Greek Thompson and Charles Rennie Mackintosh. Who ever heard of those two? Uh, uh, Well, I was going to make a drag race joke. The Vivian... (laughs) Never had never heard of Charles Rennie Macintosh. Uh, oh, I Furious. have questions. The these the designers were largely um they designed monuments largely for the wealthy and notable individuals that are buried there because they cost a lot of money. Um so Sir Billy Connolly said of Glasgow's affinity for a good cemetery because we do enjoy a good cemetery in this city. Um quote Glasgow's a bit like Nashville, Tennessee. It doesn't care much for the living, but it really looks after its dead. Yeah. Fair. I don't care for <laughs> no. a lot of the living either. <laughs> either. But he's, he's right. We've got a lot of good cemeteries in the city. Yeah. All of which we'll probably cover at some point. Yeah. Um, so over the years, the necropolis has seen many a famous interment. So here's a few individuals that have made it their final resting place. Because we love that. I might know a few. 
You might know a few. So the first one is a man by the name of John Henry Alexander. Yep, he's not one of the Do ones I know. There we go. <laughs> <laughs> so he was born in 1792 and died in 1851. And he was an actor, a theatre owner, and manager of one of the first theatre royals in Glasgow. Fantastic. <laughs> there we go. Well done, Mr... Alexander! <laughs> so, That's good. Yeah, so this theatre was originally situated on Dunlop Street in Glasgow City Centre, upon which the St Enoch Centre now stands. Lovely. So there's a big shopping centre now plonked right on the street. And this, um, and the theatre opened on January 1782. Now, the theatre operated as two separate houses in the mid-1820s, leased by both Alexander and a man by the name of Francis Seymour. So both men were of a similar age and both hated each as much as the other. <laughs> oh, I thought you were going to tell me that they were both gay and they were in a relationship. No. I mean, they could have been. Maybe that's why they hated each other. Maybe it was like a love-hate thing going on. Or maybe it was all just a, a ruse. It was just a ruse. <gasps> Who knows? Oh, yeah. Who knows? But yeah, apparently they really disliked each other quite intensely. Okay. okay. So it's like, and it, this is like a proper classic, like, theatre rivalry. So Seymour ran the Caledonian Theatre, which inhabited the upstairs, inverted commas, area of the building. And Alexander leased the cellar of the building. And he named it the Dominion of Fancy. Was it a bit of burlesque? <laughs> Personally, I don't know because I couldn't find much information on this except for this ridiculous... Victorian burlesque used to just flash an ankle. That's all it was. It was as simple as that. Simple as that. So their dual leasing of this one building led to all-out theatrical warfare. So it is reported that when one staged a quiet drama one night, the other would hire in a brass band for that very same day. <laughs> But that's very cheeky. It is very cheeky. I also think this would make an excellent sitcom. Oh, yeah. Starring Ian McKellen and Patrick Stewart. Yeah, absolutely. I'd these watch two that. warring Yeah, these two warring theatre managers forced to inhabit the same building. I love <laughs> trying that. to outdo each other. It's also, like, it's literally the equivalent of you putting on Hamlet in the theatre up the stairs and me staging a full opera down the stairs. That's effectively the equivalent um, so with tensions rising between the two, city magistrates would eventually have to step in, ordering that the premises operate on alternate nights. <laughs> oh, God. <laughs> Desperate times. Like... Desperate times. So Seymour eventually took over the lease on the Theatre Royal Queen Street. There has been multiple Theatre Royals in our city, Chris. Lots of them. Lots of them. And which in classic theatre royal fashion, would be destroyed by fire. Oh, yes. Because for some reason, the theatre royals of this city have a habit of just spontaneously combusting. I don't know what's going on. There's definitely, like, a spontaneous combustion habit going on. Because that just can't be coincidence. Anyway, um, so this left Alexander to take over all of the Dunlop Street Theatre. Alexander was not known for being the most modest of individuals. 
apparently placing a statue of himself outside the theatre alongside a statue of Shakespeare and other theatrical legends. Come on. That's so <laughs> narcissistic. That's the kind of thing Lin-Manuel Miranda would do. I mean, you're probably not wrong. I'm not. I know it. I can see it in his eyes. Cannot stand the man. <laughs> I really feel oh really God. strongly about it. You definitely get some passion there behind that. Enjoy that. Do not like the man. Um, it is also reported that he would wander around the stage during performances, moving set around until he was satisfied, and would openly berate and coax actors in front of the audience. Who gave him this job? <laughs> Himself, that's the issue. Oh, I see. I see. <laughs> um, and he was also known for counting audience members in order to ensure the takings were correct at the end of the night. So his monument in the necropolis was designed by James Hamilton. It was sculpted by Alexander Handyside Ritchie. Very good name. Handyside? Eh, Handyside, It sounds yeah. like killing someone, literally... killing someone with your hands. <laughs> it literally is. It's not, it literally is spelled like Handyside. Oh. Like, it's a very okay. good name. Um, so the monument is tr- intentionally designed to resemble a proscenium arch and scene and is flanked by two statues depicted as tragedy and comedy. Although reportedly, one of these statues is now headless and the other is missing entirely. Oh. So who knows shame. what happened there? That's something <laughs> that was that I would have looked for. Yeah. So who knows if it was just time or whether someone actively stole the statues from... Alexander's grave. Who knows? It's a mystery. It is a mystery. So that's the story of uh, John Henry Alexander. He was certainly a character, to say to say the least. Why? Yeah. So, also buried in the necropolis is a man by the name of James Jeffrey. So, born in 1759 and died in 1848, Jeffrey was a professor of anatomy and botany at the University of Glasgow at its old campus on High Street. And fun fact, his 58 years of professorship is one of the longest in Scottish history. Well, congratulations. Um, so Geoffrey is also credited with the invention of the surgical chainsaw around 1830. Um, it was specifically designed to accurately remove sections of damaged bone, which I suppose is just better than hacking off with a knife. Yeah, take note, Robert Liston. Take no, just saying. <laughs> <laughs> um, in 1817, he was actually one of the joint founders of the Glasgow Botanic Gardens. Lovely, just around the corner. Yeah, just around the corner. Um, but do you know that we have actually already met Professor James Jeffrey on this podcast many, many episodes ago? Was he involved in Mr. Clydesdale? He was indeed. Yay! <laughs> Your memory serves you well. Thank you. Um, so Jeffrey is actually Glasgow's own Dr. Frankenstein. So, yeah, Jeffrey is perhaps best known for his part in the Matthew Clydesdale experiment. On the 4th of November, 1818, Jeffrey, assisted by colleague Dr. Andrew Ewer, conducted an experiment in galvanism on the body of Clydesdale. The man had been executed for murder, his body therefore available for dissection. 
for all of you out there that haven't listened to it, see episode six, Walking Around with a Big Horsey Face, uh, for the full story on the Matthew Clydesdale experiment, its findings, and it becoming one of Glasgow's greatest legends. It's a good one. I do enjoy that episode because I think that's also the witch trial episode as well, which I do enjoy. Yeah, Yeah. me too. And lastly, we have a lady by the name of Isabella Elder. Have you heard of this lady? No. No. Good. You're in for an excellent story. If I do say so myself. Isabella Ure was born on the 15th of March, 1828 in the Gorbals area of Glasgow. Jumping forward a bit because I couldn't find anything else in her early life. Um, in 1857, <laughs> she, marries, uh, she would marry John Elder, who was a partner in Randolph Elder & Co., which was a marine engineer company. This business acquired a shipyard in Govan in 1860. For those of you who don't know, Govan is an area in the south side of Glasgow. Um, and it became known as John Elder and Co. in 1868. So Elder actually died in 1869. And at the time, the shipyard was one of the leading yards in the world. Let me stress that again. World. <laughs> In this little suburb of Glasgow, this was, like, leading the way. Um, at the time, the yard employed almost 5,000 individuals, and Isabella Elder successfully managed the company for nine months until she passed it on. There you go. Nice. I think, I think it was to her brother-in-law. I didn't write that down, but it was she passed it on to a man anyway. <laughs> okay, yeah. yeah. <laughs> to keep take care of the running of it. Um, this yard would come to be known as the Fairfield Shipbuilding and Engineering Company. And for those of us that are locals to Glasgow, it is often just referred to as Fairfield or Fairfields. Um, and that's actually where my grandfather used to work. Oh! Yeah, my nice. mum's dad used to work at Cute. Fairfield. He was... Oh, God, I can't, I can't remember. Uh... I think he was like a. I think he drilled the holes into the ships where they were going to put like the bolts. Like rivets and things. Yeah, okay. yeah. I think that's what he did. But also because there was no health and safety, he did become profoundly deaf <laughs> through it. wasn't wasn't fun. That'll do it. But yeah, I love. I like. There's a little connection there. A little familial connection. Yeah. Nice. So. Elder would move to Claremont Terrace in the west end of the city, which is close by to the University of Glasgow and Kelvin Grove Park. She donated £5,000 to support the chair of civil engineering at Glasgow and gave £12,500 to fund the John Elder Chair of Naval Architecture. She had a lot of money. She was a very wealthy lady. <laughs> £12,500 at that time must have been... Exactly. absolute fortune. Isabella Elzer had taken a keen interest in the university and education and would be one of the trailblazers in the advocating of women's education. What the heck? Yeah, this is where our stories start to intertwine slightly. <laughs> How do we keep doing this? How do we keep doing this? And you changed your story last minute, so that's what makes it even weirder. <laughs> I have a sixth sense. So she purchased North Park House in 1883, giving the property rent-free, again, I'd like to stress, rent-free to the newly formed Queen Margaret College. 
and this is one of the first colleges in Scotland to offer higher education to women. She also provided financial support to the college in order to offer courses in medicine to women. What the heck? (laughs) So (laughs) Queen Margaret would become part of the University of Glasgow in 1892, as at this point, legislation had been passed that now allowed women to be accepted into universities. So as you so eloquently told us earlier on... My mind is blown. There you go. I don't know how we do this. I don't know how we do this either. Um, The first cohort of female students graduated in medicine in 1894, those in the arts in 1895. Elder, however, remained concerned that the women would not receive the same standard of teaching if taught separately from the men. And she only agreed to continue helping if guaranteed that the women's teaching was of equal standard to that of the male students. So similarly to your story, the women were taught separately and she was super duper concerned that they were going to be seen as lesser and therefore not receive the same standard of teaching that all the male students were receiving. Yeah. Um... Although, in 1899, Elder was still not satisfied that the university had kept their promise and she was incredibly unimpressed in the standard of lecturing the female students were receiving. She then refused to give any more money to the principal of the university unless their original agreement was kept. So she had a lot of... Yeah, she had a lot of clout. And she was, like, not backing down (laughs) on this matter. Because chances are, they probably thought, oh, she's not really, she's not going to care. She doesn't really care. When actually, she was super involved in trying to make sure that these women not only, A, had access to further education, but B, it was of a high standard. Yeah. And quite friggin' right too. Absolutely. So Elder was an active philanthropist throughout the city, not just helping those in the wealthy realm of the West End. Many of these philanthropic projects were situated in Govan, the place where the shipyard was situated. In 1883, she established plans for Elder Park in honour of both her husband and her father-in-law, a public park measuring 37 acres situated near Fairfield Shipyard. I say near, it is literally right across the road. <laughs> okay. <laughs> so drive, very near. Very near. If you drive down Govan Road, you go past Elder Parks on one side and what was Fairfield Shipyards is on the other. So there you go. Nice. Um, so the park opened on the 27th of June, 1885. She also established the School for Domestic Economy, offering young women a chance to learn how to cook and perform household tasks whilst living on a limited budget. So actually, she was helping people at the poorer end of the spectrum as well. And this was to enable people who maybe didn't have a lot of money to live on to try and live well. Yeah. Which is... That's good. Bri- That's really nice Brilliant. Story. It's so good. Yeah. In 1901, she funds the building and stocking of Elder Free Library, situated within Elder Park itself. And 
it is still operating to this day, COVID, like, <laughs> not, notwithstanding. Yeah. Um, it's still there, basically. Yeah. Um, it is also in this same year, 1901, that she is awarded an honorary degree from the university. She She's done so much, honestly. She also provided a villa for the Cottage Nurses Training Home and in 1903 also gave funds towards the Elder Cottage Hospital. So she was very into the medicine thing and in the, yeah. into like the medical side and the teaching of medicine and stuff like that, which is amazing. Um, so Isabella Elder died on the 18th of November 1905. Her death certificate was signed by Dr. Marion Gilchrist. Now, it's now. <laughs> <laughs> it's not it's not that Marion Gilchrist that had her head bashed in with a chair. Yeah. See episode five for the full story on that yeah. one. This is a different <laughs> this is a different lady. <laughs> <laughs> it wasn't brutally murderous. <laughs> so, fun fact, Dr. Marion Gilchrist was actually the first female graduate from the University of Glasgow, and she would have most likely have been part of Queen Margaret College when it first started. Nice. So there you go. We're all about the female medicine people this week. <laughs> How did this happen? You might, when I, I text you being like, it's about women in medicine, you were probably like, oh God. <laughs> So Elder's philanthropy has not gone unmarked in the preceding years after her death in and around the university campus. In 2015, a Glasgow University building was named after her and she is also commemorated on the university gates. She also appears in a memorial stained glass window in Butte Hall, which is located within the main building at Glasgow University and is absolutely beautiful. That is where I graduated. And she is pictured alongside fellow associates and activists, Janet Ann Galloway and Jessie Campbell. And they played a big part in the establishing of Queen Margaret College and advocating women's further education. Well done, ladies. We love you. And in 1906, a statue of Isabella was unveiled in Elder Park. So the cost of this statue was around £2,000. And I did look this one up. Yeah. <laughs> so that's approximately 157000 in God. modern money. How nice is the statue? It's actually a very nice statue. Okay, okay. <laughs> the money was well spent. But um, many of the funds were actually donated by the working people of Govan, who held much respect for her. And this was their way of thanking her for all her work for the community. And this statue depicts Elder in her academic dress, holding her mortarboard in her lap. So again, it's harking back to this. She advocated education all the way so much. Um, so Elder is buried in her family's tomb on the highest hill of the necropolis. So if you go right up to the top, it's up towards, towards the back. And actually, I have a slightly weird story about the last time I was in the necropolis. So the last time me and my family all went for a walk up at the necropolis, we were chatting about f- famous, quote-unquote, like well-known Glasgow people that are buried buried there. And I found that James Jeffrey was there and I went and found his, his grave. And then I was like, 
Oh, Isabella Elder is apparently buried up here somewhere. And on the, her Wikipedia page, <laughs> there is a picture of her grave. And I was looking at it, I was like, oh, it's this thing. It kind of looks like this with like a sort of Celtic symbol. And I was looking at the picture, looked up, and it was literally right in front of me. Spooky. It was very, very strange because I was like, that that looks like that same this one, that one over there. And it was literally it. Wow. We were, I, was, I was called to go and see her that day. Yeah. <laughs> It was very, very strange. It was very, very... Thank you. I'm sure she would appreciate that. (laughs) Um, So that is Glasgow City of the Dead, the necropolis. Wow. Lovely. Who would have expected a link? Well, the minute you started talking about (laughs) women studying medicine i was like okay okay and i didn't come across i didn't come across big isabel big isabel i would just like we don't talk about isabella elder enough yeah because she was just brilliant and proves that not all victorians were bad people and not all rich people were bad people. And not all rich people were bad people. And apparently the elders, they felt it was their Christian duty to do good things with their money because they had been lucky enough to be born into a life yeah, where they could... They could actually help. They could do stuff with it. So... She very much, she very much did and was in a position of power where she could help women who perhaps wouldn't be able to have gone to university or receive any kind of higher like education. education, yeah. Yeah, at the time and advocated it and helped out. I mean, the fact that she gave them, gave Queen Margaret College their premises... And didn't charge them. Yeah. It's just... That's incredible. Says a, says a lot. Also and says a lot about she, how much money she had. Uh, well, yeah. <laughs> she had lots of monies. But also, did you know that Isabella Elder statue is only one of four women, one of four female statues in this entire city? The whole city? The whole city. There is four statues to women. Shameful. Which is crazy when you think about because again it's this whole hidden history thing. It's people that we don't that we don't talk about because I think everybody always presumes oh it must have been John Elder, that's what yeah. like that did all this stuff. When actually he died quite prematurely, and it was Isabella that went on, yeah, and helped and advocated and gave money and worked. And but didn't just help the wealthy, also helped the poor, helped the people that were working in her family shipyard. Yeah. Help ran it for nine months and no one lost their job and it didn't go bust. So proved that actually women were just as capable yeah. as men in doing in doing their jobs. And there's a really famous painting of Isabella Elder still in her mourning dress, um, after John Elder's death. And she looked like a very 
kind woman. Right. You get, like, it's a painting. If I can find a copy, if I can find it online anywhere, I'll try and put it on the Instagram this week. But she looks like a, you get good energy off that painting. I yeah. think she was a very nice, very nice lady. And yeah, she did lots of lots of good things and we should talk about talk about her more. Yeah. People go visit the necropolis. Yeah. It'd be free. Um it's an excellent walk. It's also good cardio because it is on very steep hills. Yeah, true. <laughs> it's very steep. I've and only also, ever done one are... proper walk. Yeah. There. And if you are looking for any of the history or records of people that are interred there if you go to if you just search for the friends of glasgow necropolis it's an organization that used to do tours of the necropolis but obviously that has presently been put on hold because of the whole pandemic situation but hopefully they'll come back soon but they've got some really good resources um and links to books because there are books on the necropolis as well if you want to go and if you want to go and have a look there. Uh, but yeah, go and visit because it's free and it is lovely. As per usual, if you've enjoyed, please pop along to our Instagram and our Facebook and things because you can see the reference photos which we will put up, put up on Friday at the same time as the episode. We also now have a Twitter which uh, we are just kind of getting started with that so it still needs quite a bit of um quite a bit of work but we'll get there eventually and hopefully that will draw in some new listeners and uh, once again thank you to true crime diva do remember to go and check them out uh, deb has an excellent blog and is due to start another excellent blog i am sure very very soon and um yes of course and again i say it's just the same thing again um should you ever have a question for the hat please do either email or message us at in and it will go straight into the hat and may feature on future episodes also if you happen to own an apple device (laughs) if you could jump into that little purple icon that is apple Podcasts and leave us a little review because it does help us immensely in the big massive podcast algorithm of this world it does it does we want to be seen by the people of the world was that gothic a wee bit i just went to push up glasses did you see that yeah i'm not wearing them not wearing glasses